Hello, my name is Vivian Parry. I'm a writer and broadcaster with a special interest in rare disease, and you're listening to the third in the Hyperpara Exchange podcast series. Our podcasts focus on a rare endocrine disease called hypoparathyroidism, hyperpara for short. They aim to understand some of the key challenges faced by those living with the condition, but from different perspectives. In our first two episodes, we heard from patients, but we also heard from expert endocrinologists. So far, we've been looking at the wide range of physical symptoms that are experienced. That's in episode one. In episode two, we concentrated on the emotional impact, not just on the patient, but on their family and friends too. And you can catch up with both episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. Just search for Hyperpower Exchange. Now, the symptoms of hyperparathyroidism alter over the course of 24 hours. So in this, our third episode, we wanted to take a look at a day in the life of someone with hyperpara, both from their perspective and that of an expert endocrinologist. Before we start, I need to tell you that this podcast has been produced and funded by Takeda and is available to the public for information purposes only. It should not be used for diagnosis or treating health problems or disease. It's not intended to substitute for consultation with healthcare providers. Please consult your healthcare provider for further advice. The impact of the symptoms of hyperpara described in this podcast are based on two people's experience and perspective of living with a condition described in their own words. And not all people living with a condition will experience the same symptoms. Having said all of that, let me welcome our expert endocrinologist today, Maria Luisa Brandi, Professor of Endocrinology at the University of Florence. And we've also got Jen and Isabel, two patients living with chronic hyperparathyroidism. Let's turn to you first, Professor Brandy. Can you just start us off with a brief overview of what hyperparathyroidism is? Hypoparathyroidism is an endocrine disorder that is characterized by low or absent levels of parathyroid hormone, and this causes hypocalcemia and hyperphosphatemia. And the condition is associated with a number of complications. Uh, complications can affect different organs in the body. And these include the brain, the eyes, but most of all, the patients suffer for neuromuscle symptoms, such as muscle spasm. One very frequently described condition by the patients is brain fog, a name that has been really coined for this disorder. And the patients suffer also for mental disturbances, such as memory loss and loss of concentration, all of these being collectively called brain fog. And this is seen in almost all hypoparathyroid patients uh, in different levels, however. There are patients that can suffer of very severe symptoms and others uh, that instead have much more verbal symptoms of the disease. Thank you. That's really helpful, Professor Brandy. Now, I mentioned at the top there that symptoms varied across the day. Is that a typical feature of hyperpara? Yes, in fact, it is. That because the conventional therapy for hypoparathyroidism includes the uh, administration of calcium and active vitamin D. And this happens to be more difficult during the day, for instance, uh, in the late afternoon, the patients that, that got calcium and vitamin D eventually 
after lunch because this needs to be taken with not with an empty stomach it can suffer some loss of calcium and therefore symptoms can be just more severe in the late afternoon certainly in the morning because the patients cannot introduce supplements of calcium during the night during the night and that happens that in the morning the patients can suffer a lowering of calcium in the serum and the circulation and they have are just more symptomatic now we're here today to talk about the daily routine of living with hyperpara from the moment that someone wakes up to when they go to sleep at night and before we go into the detail Isabel and Jen, I just want to ask you how you were each first diagnosed. Isabel. I'm Isabel and I live in the UK. My diagnosis of hyperpara came directly after being treated for thyroid cancer in 1988, so some 30 plus years ago now. I was only 15 at the time and my neck had become severely swollen and a lump had appeared on the right hand side um, and that was an infected lymph node. So it was the removal of this lymph node that confirmed the cancer diagnosis. So I had to have a total thyroidectomy, which was the removal of my thyroid gland as part of my treatment. And it was during this surgical operation that my parathyroids were not saved. And that um, is what resulted in me developing permanent and chronic post-surgical hyperparathyroidism. What about you, Jen? So I live in the U.S., um, and I was diagnosed following a surgery for a thyroidectomy in 2004. So it's been about 15 years since um, I was diagnosed with hypopara. I was diagnosed about a month after surgery um, by my endocrinologist when I was experiencing chronic low-calcium symptoms. So my symptoms started a day after surgery. I was discharged about midday, and I had some strange symptoms. I felt a lot of anxiety, and I didn't know why. I had facial drooping. My mouth and my face were almost completely numb to the touch. Um, and I was really confused. They told me my calcium level was low and gave me some calcium tablets to take, but they didn't explain to me what were typical symptoms that I needed to be aware of and what might be more concerning. Wow. So you both came to this really very suddenly, I, I, I guess, but you've now both had this condition for quite some time. So What's your day-to-day life like with hyperpara? Let's start when you first wake up. Jen. Yeah, so I'm pretty aware of having hypopara right from the very start of the day. Most people in the morning, I think it's pretty normal to stretch a little bit. But what's different for me is that I have to be really careful about the way that I stretch, because if I stretch in certain ways, then it can trigger the cramping. So if I stretch and point my toes, that can trigger calf cramping. I mostly feel the same every day when I wake up. Um, the thing about hypopara is that it's really unpredictable. So I could have weeks of waking up with hypopara feeling exactly the same, and then suddenly I could wake up one morning feeling really different. So with more muscle cramping and spasms and a lot of tingling and weakness in the extremities. And there often is no reason that I can work out as to why that's happening. Sound familiar, Isabel? It sounds very familiar. I mean, I always start um, the day feeling tired because I haven't usually slept well. Um, sometimes I wake up with muscle ache and bone pain, and sometimes my legs feel really, really heavy as if there's a weight pressing down on them. And as Jen mentioned, hyperpara can be very unpredictable. And sometimes I can wake up feeling absolutely fine and full of beans. So you said, Jezebel, that you wake up feeling tired. What's the first thing then that you do after you've woken up? What's your normal routine in the morning? 
Well, my normal routine will start with me tapping my face for any visual clues of low calcium, such as twitching. Then I have to get up and take my first batch of medication. Then I'll get showered, prepare myself for work, prepare my son for school. Then we'll have breakfast. Then I'll take my second batch of medication because I have to space my medication out. Um, But if I don't have time, I just end up taking all my meds in one go. And if I'm in a rush, sometimes I just forget to take my meds. But if I do forget to take my medication, my body will soon tell me and then I'll need to act pretty quickly because once low calcium symptoms start, they can escalate at a pretty rapid rate. Like Isabel, the very first thing I do when I wake up is take medication. Because I don't have a thyroid, I need to take thyroid medication. So that's the first thing I do because... That needs to be taken on an empty stomach, and it needs to be separated from the meds for my hypopara, which I need to take in the morning as well. I need to leave at least an hour before taking my thyroid meds and taking my hypopara meds, which need to be taken with food. Before hypopara, I could get up and get ready for work pretty quickly and get out the door. Now I need about two hours in the morning before I'm ready to leave, and a lot of that has to do with the spacing of my medication. Sometimes I need to leave the house pretty quickly, and I have to take all my medication with me on the road. Have either of you noticed any changes in this morning routine during the time that you've lived with hypopara? Jen? Yeah, I've gotten to a point now where I've adjusted to what I call a new normal, where what was normal before is no longer normal for me. It's normal for me to have some level of symptoms in the morning now, usually some kind of tingling in the extremities and the muscle cramping I mentioned, until I start getting some of the meds into me and start moving. In the last five to ten years, it's gotten pretty consistent, so I'm quite used to it now. Isabel, what's different for you? Well, I can understand the new normal. I too, I get the tingling, which usually starts in my head and goes down my back um, and down my legs. Um, I actually feel more tired and less able as I've got older and I've lived longer with this condition. I find I can help myself by drinking uh, warm milk before I go to bed at night. And that's really just to maintain my calcium levels somewhat during the night. So when I wake up, they haven't dropped so much. I also live with two other chronic conditions. So I'm severely hypothyroid without a thyroid and I also have chronic kidney disease. So it's never really clear cut from which I'm not feeling well from. Stress, exercise and foods, etc. they all affect my calcium levels. You've mentioned having milk at night, but what do you both have for breakfast? I always have cereal with milk. It's really important. I have something with calcium in, in the morning and if I don't eat, I will just become incredibly moody and irritable. And so you have to eat pretty regularly? I have to, um, but I don't always get a chance. And sometimes I can forget to eat if I'm just so busy rushing around. But it's really important to maintain calcium levels. So incorporating calcium-rich foods into my diet is something I have to do and something I've really learned to do because it's much better for me over taking calcium tablets all the time. Does this resonate for you, Jen? Yeah. I mean, so I mostly follow a Mediterranean diet. So whole grains, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, lean proteins, high quality dairy and cheeses, that type of thing. Um, I don't eat any processed foods or convenience foods, and I don't have any fast foods at all ever. I'm very conscious of that. During the work week, I'm, I'm really consistent with my breakfast. I have a cup of coffee and eat a protein bar on the way to work. I find it's a lot easier to manage if I'm consistent with my diet because my calcium level can change depending on how much of my dietary calcium I take in. So if I try and be consistent with taking the same amount each day, 
then there's not going to be as much fluctuation. I don't notice much if I miss a meal um, as far as my calcium and how I'm feeling um, with symptoms. I think I just usually feel the same as anyone when they miss a meal, kind of hungry and cranky. But it's it's really more concerning if my diet changes extremely. We heard there from Jen and Isabel about how difficult it can be for patients with hyperpower to manage their day. Professor Brandy, what's your experience of how people with hyperpower cope, specifically first thing in the morning? And do they describe to you how they feel when they wake up? And is there anything particular that they struggle with first thing in the morning? The first symptoms that the patients usually describe when they wake up is stiffness in their muscles and cramping. With the conventional therapy that is calcium and active vitamin D metabolites, we uh, cannot administer calcium during the night. Therefore, the patients uh, can have low calcium levels in the morning simply because they didn't get enough calcium during the night, uh, being this impossible. And this can lead to muscle cramps and the patients feeling very confused when they first wake up. This happens, uh, however, in different degrees, uh, and this depends very much on the person. Each one of us is different. There is uh, a lot of genes and epigenetics playing a role. But the majority will say that the morning is the worst moment in the day for them. I'm wondering, because vitamin D is manufactured in our skins uh, through the action of sunlight, if people feel better in the summer months rather than the winter months, or, or isn't that the case? If we refer to the summer months for the synthesis of vitamin D in the skin, this will not actually change very much the life of our patients because the vitamin D that is produced by the skin is firstly activated in the liver and finally activated in the kidney. And this needs the parathyroid hormone presence. So the hypoparathyroid patients, unfortunately, are not able to activate their vitamin D that they can synthesize in a higher level during the summer. It's also true that the summer is a moment where we do more physical activity. We tend to distract ourselves. We go on vacation, and that's good for everyone, eventually, also for the hypoparathyroid patients. But if they do well, because otherwise, for these patients, uh, the life is not so easy, and they tend to be very isolated. If they don't feel well, they cannot enjoy what normal people, I would say, can really somehow enjoy. Now, I'm guessing that having uh, something at lunchtime is very important because you have to take your calcium supplements with food. So is the late afternoon also a problem for hyperpara patients? Yes, it is. Uh, it's a moment in which they can suffer more uh, symptoms related to the lowering of calcium in the blood because they took the calcium dose after lunch and now if they didn't have something to eat in the afternoon, eventually they can go low before dinner. So if this happens, uh, usually it's very good and I say my patients uh, to eat something and to get a small quantity of calcium. So our patients don't have the possibility to monitor the calcium levels and they have to, to act like doctors of themselves, trying to listen themselves and to understand what is needed without 
not increasing too much the intake of calcium. Both Jen and Isabel talked about their diets and what they like to eat. But is there a specific diet that people with hyperparia should follow or get advice on? And can a, a specific diet help people manage their condition? We said that this condition is characterized by hypocalcemia, so low levels of calcium in the circulation, and hyperphosphatemia, high levels of phosphate in the circulation. Therefore, we can give advice on specific diets to follow. Our patients uh, have low calcium levels, so we can suggest to introduce more calcium within their diet. If we can reduce the amount of calcium supplements, then that's much better for the patient. We want to try also to avoid that our patients only refer to calcium supplements to feel better. And it's much better to get the calcium with food than just with supplements. Because with food, the symptoms that the supplements uh, cause, they disappear. For hypopara patients, it's very important to have a diet that avoids a high level of phosphates. And we usually work with our nutritionists in order to develop specific diets and counseling also for the hypopara patients. What about exercise? Because, you know, it's part of so many of our lifestyles. People go to the gym, they have activities that, you know, jogging or running or whatever it is. How does that fit into the person with hyperparas lifestyle? Certainly, we think about a hypopara patient, it doesn't come immediately to your mind that exercise is something that the patient will like to do because they are complaining so much neuromuscle symptoms that you tend to think that that's not good for them. However, it's important to consider all aspects of lifestyle. And this includes also exercise, a gym routine. This can help the patients to solve some of the muscle symptoms. They need to be addressed to certain exercise. They need to be followed. They don't need to do too much, but was it good for them? And I believe that we need to work much more in the future to have also routines that are suggested to these patients that are good in general for the majority of the hypopara patient. At the end, the final goal of care is always to provide the patients with any suggestions to improve their lifestyle, but most of all, their quality of life. I have to say that in my experience with my patient, usually they do not receive this type of advice. And usually the physicians focus more on pharmacological interventions, but they don't are so much focused on lifestyle. We had good doctors when we uh, think about both of them. Thanks, uh, Professor Brandy. Now, I want to go back to uh, Jen and uh, Isabel. Jen, you mentioned that you rush off in the morning with your protein bar, but what else do you have about you in the morning? Yeah, I always have medication with me and I have it stashed in a lot of different places. So in my purse, in my work bag, at my desk at work, in my glove compartment of my car. When my kids were little, they were in their 
hockey bags and their soccer bags everywhere. So, you know, I learned very early on never to be without medication because hypopara can be very unpredictable. Where do you carry your stash, Isabel? Well, like Jen, stashing it everywhere. And aside from the usual handbag paraphernalia, I do. I carry spare medication and my medical ID information. And this includes the chewable version of my meds, um, which is easier to take on the go. I also carry a spare blood test form. Unfortunately, living with hyperpara means I'm self, well, I'm reliant on self-management as there are no home blood testing kits in existence to check blood calcium levels in the same way someone with diabetes can monitor their own blood. So I have no choice but to take myself to the local hospital to get emergency bloods taken to find out if I'm heading for a crisis or not. I just need to be ready at any moment to look after me. Do you feel restricted about where you can go and how far you can travel during the day? Absolutely. Because I now know the consequences of what can happen when things go horribly wrong with my levels, my main restriction is my own fear, and that's resulted from times of instability. And this is what prevents me from travelling too far from home or too far from my local hospital. Was there something specific that triggered all of this? Well, when I was much younger, I loved to travel and visit remote and faraway places. And during these times, I had been stable, and therefore I was fearless, and so I could be adventurous. Ignorance was bliss. But one day, years later, I felt the full effects of my worst hypercalcemic crash to date, and that left me seriously traumatised. I was unable to speak because of tongue seizure, and I was unable to swallow, and low calcium affects my ability to swallow. And because I couldn't swallow, I couldn't eat. Uh, As a result, I lost 10 kilograms in weight. I was traumatised for for months. I had every textbook symptom. Um, It took, well, it took almost a year, if not longer, to recover from that episode. That must have been terrifying for you. The panic and anxiety, I feel, is actually a physiological symptom, which is often misunderstood. I'm fine with day trips, but any distance that would require an overnight stay, including holiday destinations, would need really careful, meticulous planning. And again, this fear of being far from home is because of my calcium crashes. Um, So, for example, sometimes I do need to go abroad, either for work or to visit family. But I would need to know my blood calcium levels before travel, during the time of travel or during the time I'm away and even upon my return. I need to know that if I need to get to hospital that I'm going to be treated and they'd know what to do. Jen, do you feel the same thing or do you, uh, are you more relaxed about traveling? I don't really feel any restrictions on traveling like Isabel um, because my medication is very portable. So the only time I might feel a restriction is if I'm going to go somewhere that I can't carry a bag and be able to carry that medication. So I actually buy workout clothes that have small little pockets in them so I can still make sure that I'm carrying medication with me, like if I'm going to the gym or going hiking or something like that. Oh, that's very cunning. Pockets in your workout clothes. That's a great tip. (laughs) Are there any particular triggers that affect you, Jen? I mean, what does a normal day look like for you? So I I typically take medication three times a day, and I find that because I work a very busy, demanding job that I often miss those um, that midday medication. I usually don't miss lunch um, as I need to make sure I eat at regular intervals. But for whatever reason, sometimes when I get lunch, I don't remember to take my meds. So then in the evening when I get home and I'm trying to prepare dinner, I'll start to feel symptomatic and feel some of that increased tingling and muscle spasms. And then I'll remember I didn't take that midday medication and I'll have to take it later in the evening. Are you able to share all of this with your 
work colleagues, you know, are your friends aware of these triggers and do they understand? Isabel? I've been in my current job for the past two years and I do get support and understanding. However, my experience of the work environment in my past career life has not always been positive. Colleagues have had no idea how to identify with me. They've not been sympathetic or helpful and have not even been aware of the times I was becoming ill or of the times I was very ill in hospital or even the times I was in recovery having been very ill. The work environment was always so full on and ridiculously busy. It's very far from the real world. I changed my long-standing career two years ago when I was dismissed from my then job. I was in a highly stressful environment and that was making me very sick. And this prevented me from being able to work properly and I had to take a lot of time off. Then one day, just a week after returning to work, after a more serious episode, I was asked to leave. Wow, that must have been tough. But were your family and friends more sympathetic? Sure. I mean, regarding my family and friends, my parents try their best to understand. My husband is my rock and totally understands. My son is learning to understand and melts my heart when he asks if he can dissolve my medication in water for me. Only a handful of my friends understand and the rest have no idea. In fact, I don't even bother talking to them about it. Many don't even fully comprehend I live with three chronic conditions. I imagine, Jen, this is very resonant for you, what Isabel is saying here. But have you found it difficult to be open about your condition with colleagues at work or with uh, friends and family? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I didn't really talk to anyone about my condition for the first five years after my diagnosis. I think part of that was that I was a very active, normal, healthy person before my surgery and my hypopara onset. And then after my surgery, I tried really hard to remain that person. I had three very young children and I wanted to try to keep as normal a life as possible for my kids. So my husband knew I was struggling with it and my kids knew I took a lot of medication during the day, but I tried to maintain as normal a life as possible. Part of that was because when you have hypopara, you don't actually look like a sick person. You talked about uh, being very fit and active. Are you still doing those kind of hobbies, Jen, or have you changed? Are you doing something else in your spare time? Although I imagine you don't have much spare time with three kids. Yeah, no, definitely. Sometimes um, I'm just physically exhausted, especially on the weekends after a um, big, long, draining week at work. Um, I'm also a grad student and pursuing a master's degree, so my evenings and weekends are a lot of time filled with that. And as a result, I just don't have a lot of energy left over, particularly physical energy. Um, I definitely feel more symptomatic sometimes during and after physical activity, and it can be difficult to get myself motivated to stay physically active sometimes. Um, in the first couple of years after my diagnosis, I was it wasn't possible for me to be physically active at all. I'm very fortunate that I have a really good doctor who works closely with me on my treatment regime. So we've devised a really good way of treating my symptoms, and I've learned what my triggers are when I'm physically active. I can go from feeling quite normal to having physical symptoms as well as cognitive ones such as confusion. So for that reason, I try and make sure that I never work out alone and always have somebody with me who's understanding of the condition and can look for those signals in case I get into trouble. And are you active, Isabel? I am. Um, and I love to go to the gym. I love to dance. Um, but it's not always possible because of work or other things going on in my life. I can't believe you two. I mean, you, you talk about packed days. But anyway, when you finally get home after you've 
you know, had a hard day at work, you've picked the kids up from school, what's the first thing you do when you get home? Let's start with you, Isabel. Well, what I'd like to do is kick off my shoes, put my feet up and put the television on, but that doesn't happen. When I get home, my work begins. I need to prepare food, do the household chores, do the bath time and bedtime routine with my son. Before I know it, the day's over and I'm beyond shattered and the cycle starts over again. When my husband is not on a late shift or if he's off work, then he can take the pressure off me. He's brilliant at helping around the house and with our son. So, Jen, kick the shoes off first. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's generally the first thing I do. And then I I start to prepare dinner. Um, My kids are older now and two live away from home, but I still make dinner for my teenage son and my husband. And usually as I'm starting to do that, I often start to feel symptomatic and remember that I probably didn't take my midday meds. So I have to sort that out before I can carry on. I try to be active um, during a few evenings in the week. I usually prefer outdoor activities, so I love biking and hiking and a little bit of running um, if I can get out in the evening if I have time. And I definitely have to plan for that, take medication with me, and sometimes um, taking some in anticipation of experiencing the symptoms, depending on how strenuous the activity is that I'm going to plan. Beyond that, my evenings are taken up with grad school work, so reading or writing papers, and again, in order to accomplish that, I need to be mentally sharp. And sometimes hypoparic can affect that as it can cause cognitive difficulties. So I'm feeling deeply inadequate here with the both of you. But anyway, Isabel, what about you? I mean, obviously with little children, it's it's slightly different, but what do you do in the evenings? Well, hypopara is with me in everything I do, um, as are the other two chronic conditions I live with. And sometimes I feel social and other times I don't. And sometimes all I want to do is sleep, but that's not an option. And what I like to do and what I have to do are not really in harmony. I would love to be able to relax in the evenings or go out dancing, but it's not always possible. I usually go to bed around half eight, nine o'clock with my milk and with my son and with his milk. It used to take me hours trying to get him to go to sleep. So it's just easier if the two of us go to bed together. And when he's asleep and if I have the energy, I will get up and catch up on some correspondence, watch a bit of TV, watch a film maybe. Yeah, I usually go to bed um, at the same time every day, usually by 10 p.m. I like to try to get to bed a little bit earlier, but because of the schoolwork I have to do in the evening, it's not always possible. I do typically start my days quite early around 5.30 a.m., so if I'm going to bed any later than 10, I'm really struggling in the morning. And do you sleep well? When you do go to sleep? Um, it's interesting because my days are so busy um, and I feel a lot of the days I don't have symptoms. But I think that really it's that it's not that that I don't have them. I do, but I don't notice them because I'm so busy. And then when I do notice them is at night. So when I go lie down to go to sleep because everything is quiet and I'm relaxing and getting ready to fall asleep, then that's when I become aware of a low-level buzzing sensation that's going through my body. It's not necessarily something I would have paid attention to during the day, but at night is when it becomes especially pronounced. Sometimes that can make it really difficult to go to sleep because I can feel the buzzing and I might start to get cramping in my toes and then it's a question of should I try and fall asleep and sleep through it or is it serious enough to have to get up and take some extra medication? I'm nodding my head. I so know that buzzing feeling and I get that too and it's very unnerving. 
I mean, I don't sleep well because of my hyperparinsomnia, insomnia, but also because I have to take numerous trips to go to the toilet during the night. My kidney function has suffered greatly because of my hyperpara. Professor Brandy, do people who have hyperpara have problems sleeping at night or at night time in general? And how does this add to the burden of living with the disease? Now, we have been saying that neuromuscle symptoms are really the very important symptoms. And each one of us has been experiencing cramps at night. We know how painful they are. We can wake up for cramps. These patients have cramps very often. And these together with the neuropsychiatric complications, like depression, isolation, all of these, like also being afraid that something happens during the night to you, this can affect normal sleep. It makes the life of the patients miserable when they are getting up in the morning with also low calcium level in the circulation and therefore muscles are even worse, they didn't sleep well enough and they're afraid of the next day what's going to happen and the next day they're afraid what's going to happen again to me tonight. This is such a, a, a disease with so much uh, impact. I, I, you know, every time I hear about it, I just think that it has a devastating uh, effect. Uh, tell me about the fatigue, because it, it, presumably it's cumulative. I mean, they wake up uh, with fatigue because they haven't slept well. They wake up feeling miserable because they've got low calcium levels. And how does that impact and accumulate during the day? And by the time they get to the evening, how are they feeling? Many of these patients, uh, because they were well eventually before, now they can do the same things that they were doing before, like going with the children at school, preparing the foods in the morning uh, for breakfast. So they f- eventually are very frustrated because they are not the same mothers or the same fathers they were before. And they, if they are young, they are not the same people they were before because they had in front of themselves a normal life and now they know that they are going to have a lot of limitations. And muscle weakness, the brain fog, depression, all of these affect the ability and desire of the patients to be engaged socially. The majority just cope with this. Some of them have more strength inside and they tend to just forget about the disorder going on, but the majority uh, of them have uh, really symptoms that make their life much more limited in their own possibilities than it was before. And I guess that makes the job of the endocrinologist, like you, the expert, even more important because you see those patients and you so much wants to help them. But I'm now going to turn the tables on you, Professor Brandy, because we've been talking about how hyperparo patients experience their day. I want to know about your day now. So what does a typical day look like for you? And once someone is diagnosed with hyperparo, how often do you see them? Usually we see the patients in the morning when we have our offices available to patients of different disorders of mineral metabolism, being a hypoparathyroidism, one of those. When we see the patient 
the first time we have to evaluate what has been done before. If this is a first diagnosis, we will see the patient soon. For instance, within a month, the patient will come back and we will rediscuss the therapy. We will monitor how calcium phosphate and other markers are going to move in the blood and urines of these patients. And then we'll, we'll evaluate all the possible complications at that stage. And then when the therapy is optimized, we tend to see the patient every six months. That is the standard time. However, we have patients that need to, become, be, to, be, to come uh, to our center before just because there is some complication. And obviously, we see these patients when it's needed. How are patients referred to you typically? Is it through a consultant in another specialty or or how does it work? Usually the patient come to us because we are a center very well recognized in a country like Italy for being experts in mineral and bone metabolism. And that's the reason for which the patient call and they want to have a visit in this center. Is it that is usually is it a doctor that refers uh, to you or is it a is it another hospital? How do they get to you? Or is it, do they, can they self-refer? The majority of the patients come themselves because we are well recognized in this country, being experts in the area. Then we have also some patients that is referred by doctors that are not experts in the field. Eventually also some endocrinologists that want to have some idea on the potential uh, cause of the disease. This happens more often in cases that are uh, so-called primary hypoparathyroidism, many of these being congenital. So in that case, uh, we are asked also to do genetic tests in these patients, and and we are well recognized as a center for uh, being able at least to give some answers that other centers are not able to give. Probably one of the reasons for which we are well recognized is also because after I came back from the United States at the beginning of the 90s, I established um, the genetic test for what was available at those days for all the parathyroid disorders, including hypoparathyroidism. And therefore, everyone knew that if there was a, a more difficult case, uh, they could be just uh, uh, sent to us uh, for an evaluation. So, Jen and Isabel, when you visit your endocrinologist, do you talk about these kind of details of how you live your life every day? And do you feel comfortable about going into all of this? Or do you feel that they're more interested in, if you like, your medical management? Let's go to Jen on that. Yeah, so um, I, I now I feel really comfortable talking to my doctor. Um, the endocrinologist that I'm currently with is the fourth one that I found about five years after my diagnosis. Um, so I've been seeing him for about 10 years now, and I have a terrific relationship with him. He's very accessible to me. I feel very comfortable discussing all aspects of my disease management with him. It was definitely not like that with the other three endocrinologists I saw previously. And it took a lot of effort to find someone that I was, I felt was really willing to um, listen and pay attention and was knowledgeable about treating hypopara. I don't um, keep any diaries or attend a daily log or anything like that. My endocrinologist is typically very accessible, so if I'm having difficulties with my symptoms, I'll usually just email him and he'll advise me. 
I usually see him for a minimum of 30 minutes, sometimes longer, up to an hour, and I see him every six months. Isabel, what are appointments like for you? Well, appointments for me are short, um, and that's because they're not private appointments. And so there's never really enough time to discuss anything in detail. Um, I usually get about 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the most. Um, I do. I take a bulleted list with me, and I try and get through that list in the time available. So... Is he sympathetic? So my endocrinologist, who knew me really well, recently retired. um, And he was with me for the 32 years I've lived with hyperpara. So it's been really difficult for me to lose that connection. But I have a new endo now, and she seems really good. um, But I'm at the early stages of building that relationship. And she has suggested getting an early appointment or a last appointment so she can spend more time with me, which I really appreciate. Um, The appointments are really just to go through the blood test results. So I have to have certain blood tests done at certain times to make sure that the results are in for that appointment. And then in between appointments, I need to keep track of my meds and the days I need to order my repeat prescriptions. So you both see your endocrinologists relatively infrequently, but do you also both do routine testing? Uh, Jen? Yeah. um, So my doctor will typically check for a 24-hour urine calcium excretion once a year, and then he'll run blood work for calcium level and magnesium and phosphorus um, pretty pretty frequently. If I'm feeling more symptomatic between visits, then he'll check those levels in between appointments and he might make adjustments to my medication. Uh, Professor Brandy, is there a difference then between the way patients are referred depending on whether they've got the congenital, you know, in genetic form perhaps, and the type that comes after surgery? Yes, most of the patients uh, uh, that suffer of a secondary post-surgical form of hypoparathyroidism, they usually come to our observation because they are not very happy with the management eventually that was uh, offered to them until that moment. And they want to have a value by a, a, a center, an evaluation by a center that is more experienced in the area. For the congenital forms, very often, even other doctors and other centers refer the patients to us for the genetic uh, uh, diagnosis and for an overall evaluation because uh, these cases uh, are characterized by a rarity that is so high that very often other doctors don't want just to be engaged with all the difficulties that there are in making the final diagnosis. What I'm getting from this, Professor Brandy, is that every patient is really very individual in how they experience hyperpara symptoms. But is there enough time during your appointments with them to really get into uh, the way that they're coping and what every, every symptom is? We need to give time to our visit with these patients uh, because we cannot just do in uh, 20 minutes visit everything uh, because we need to listen, to adjust the therapy, to program future actions. If this is the first visit, we need to understand which one is the cause and which one was the previous history. We need time. Less than one hour, it's impossible to dedicate to this patient because uh, otherwise we tend to be superficial on some of the points. We tend to forget something we can do and we can offer this patient. So time is really essential. 
Do you think that patients with hyperpara are able to talk openly about how they're feeling with you? And is there any other support system that's available that they could use to help them with their daily life? You see, I listen to them and they know that. And eventually they tell me everything, sometimes even too much, but it's never too much because I learn from what they tell to me what is needed and they can have insights that help me a lot in being a good doctor. I think that uh, what we do uh, as in the visit is something that is very important uh, and listening uh, and they talk freely to me. They don't talk freely about their disorder in general with the other people because they tend to be a little bit ashamed of what they suffer for. But they talk with the doctor. We can offer possibilities that are platforms, uh, website, when we can offer information, uh, we can answer the patients, for instance, and sometimes reading the answer to another patient makes possible for that patient to have the answer that he or she was looking for. So that is really the way in the future to develop uh, um, models uh, that are closer to the patients that just uh, empower the patients on the, no on the knowledge that they need to manage better the disease. Thank you so much, Professor Pranji. Well, today we've discussed what it's like living, you know, hour by hour with uh, hyperpara. I, mean, I think Jen and Isabel, you're two pretty remarkable women because actually, you know, you're holding together family, job, and living with a, you know, chronic condition that's really very unpredictable. So, you know, absolute hats off to you uh, both. But I think what we've also heard today is the importance of actually being able to talk about these things, both with your friends and family, but actually also with your endocrinologist. And it's very interesting to hear from you, Jen, about the relationship with your endocrinologist and how that's so helpful. So thank you both. Thank you, Professor Brandy, too. It's been uh, really a, a, a privilege uh, talking to you all. We've got another podcast coming soon in our series Hyperpara Exchange and for the moment thank you and I look forward to welcome you for the next podcast.